Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You're listening to Mugshot. I'm your host, Lindsay. This episode of Mugshot was co-created by Abby Martin, who assisted with research and writing. Today's Mugshot. Name... Alan Stanford, arrested for wire and mail fraud, conspiracy, money laundering, and obstruction of justice. No matter what you do in life, there are cliched maxims and axioms all around you. Some are so omnipresent, they immediately seem to conjure up cheesy motivational posters or sweaty inspirational speakers in your mind's eye as soon as you hear them. You run the day or the day runs you. Or, happiness is not a destination, it's a way of life. Or, strike while the iron is hot are all phrases that immediately can tell you a lot about a person. But for Alan Stanford, The two that sum him up the best are perhaps confidence is key and the devil is in the details. The entire Allen Stanford empire was built on these two basic maxims. If you look confident enough and throw enough confusing information at an eager investor, they're likely to bite. To top it off, if you target those who are vulnerable in a specific way and make them truly believe that they have nothing to lose by placing their faith in you, you can become a very wealthy man, at least for a time. In 1950, Maxia, Texas was occupied by just under 7,000 people when baby boy Robert Allen Stanford was added to their ranks late that March. The proud parents were both working professionals. Mom was a nurse and dad was, at one time, the mayor and a financial advisor. As the baby grew into a young adult, he opted to be known as Alan or Al. He had also chosen to stay near his boyhood home, seeking a bachelor's degree in finance at Baylor University. Stanford's sights were set on applying his education to fill a seemingly obvious niche in Texas by becoming one of the first health clubs and gyms to implement the most current and cutting-edge equipment like Nautilus machines as well as the other staples for fitness seekers, all at the same location. He was successful in this endeavor, and Stanford's flagship location was located practically in the shadow of his old campus in Waco. Before long, it was flourishing to the point he was able to open several others in nearby towns with similar demographics. Alan Stanford became the big fish in a small pond. His businesses were expanding rapidly, so as a reward and advertising gambit, Stanford purchased luxury vehicles and a helicopter and had them emblazoned with the logo of his health clubs. 
everyone knew when Big Al was on the move. The affectionate nickname, Big Al, referred not only to his business prowess, the man who made a fitness empire was also bulky. This bulky proprietor was quick to ingratiate himself with customers, but if he considered a person beneath him, such as his employees, he was quick to make sure that his efforts and manners were not wasted on them. The rich were his kind of people. He refused to associate with anybody who was common or could not propel him forward financially. Never mind the fact that his attitude created a high turnover. The one exception to his lack of regard for his hired help seemed to be a young, attractive woman named Susan, who he had recently hired at one of his locations. They married in September of 1975 and eventually had a son together. Susan was a young, beautiful addition to his reputation as a mover and shaker. The success was limited, however. In the mid-80s, the oil-filled bubble burst. The price of a barrel of crude oil had dropped to $14.44 in 1986. This was considered to be quite the plummet from the $26.92 a barrel in just the previous year of 1985. This led to a chain reaction, which summarily dismantled Alan Stanford's efforts in the health club industry. His businesses weren't even close to turning a profit due to his lavish spending on those luxury modes of transportation. Finding himself deeply mired in what was considered to be about $13 million of debt, he filed for bankruptcy and closed each location. What happened next began what would be a continual cycle in Alan Stanford's life. After a failure, it was time to make a tactical retreat. Broke and at square one, there was no time like the present to rebrand himself. He began cutting and selling firewood by the cord, which was something that he had done as a young man to earn spending money. The jet-setting former mogul spent his days doing hard physical labor and making deliveries in his pickup truck. The strains of his new lifestyle trimmed the bulk from his frame and began to add more salt to his peppery hair color. Perhaps it was the manual labor leaving his mind free to think about what his next real step would be. This is when he began to formulate the Montserrat plan. Taking advantage of the same circumstance that closed his health clubs, he used the buyer's market to scoop up properties well below their values. While the firewood business was stable, he used the equity in his father's company to buy these properties. The payoff would be a wait, but once the economy recovered, the father and son team sold off parcels for high-dollar returns on their investment. This, at least in part, funded the Montserrat plan. After he began to turn a profit on properties, Stanford decided to open a bank on the tiny Caribbean island of Montserrat. Tax havens for investors have been around since as early as the 1920s and are conveniently located all around the globe. While some are a little more reputable than others, in the 1980s, British-ruled Montserrat had a reputation of shady dealings. This island, even at the time, had an obscenely high bank-to-person ratio. 
Long before banking went online, there were less traditional forms of banking on this island. Well, some banks had lobbies and vaults that you associate with the profession, but some were just an address or the booth at a local watering hole. Sporting a tidy lampshade-style mustache and a suit, Stanford had reinvented himself for his new profession. He was now a financial advisor in a tax haven. But Stanford's new persona was not the only thing he adjusted. According to his newly rewritten history, his bank, Guardian International Bank, was founded in the 1930s by his grandfather named Lotus. His banking license was granted shortly after his arrival in 1985, some 55 years later. You see, to look credible wasn't enough. You had to have the lineage to support it. Having premises that look legitimate, a suit and mustache combo that looks clean-cut and legitimate, and a handful of employees, Stanford then began to consider what types of clientele he wanted to attract. Desperate people and individuals who are less experienced in the financial world are more likely to turn to a man in the islands versus lose their family fortune while their country's governments become increasingly unstable. Countries that were struggling at the time were mainly located in South America. So, newspaper ads were placed advertising the help that Guardian International Bank could give to wealthy citizens of Venezuela and similar countries. At times, the ads were pretty straightforward, average-looking bank ads. But the womanizer in Stanford couldn't resist throwing in a beautiful woman in an ad here and there. But as a customer, why should you risk your money when things were so unstable? Well, as a responsible and respected, well-established institution, which had been operating since the 30s, they were able to hone their skills over the years which resulted in slightly higher returns than most banks. They were just that good. Of course, the only minor problem was, it was all a well-tailored farce. Few investors ever saw a return on their deposits. We've actually talked about this before, where initial investors' money was actually invested and grew, but went right back to the inventor of the scheme. Then, the next group to put money in went partially towards the first group, to make it seem as if they were getting a return, with the remainder going towards the schemer. The cycle continues until eventually you run out of money coming in. Same thing in this case. Every cent possible went into Stanford's pockets. However, all that glitters is not gold. While Stanford was cutting his teeth in the financial sector of a tax haven, reform was on its way to Montserrat and their banking laws. Several banks and other financial institutions had caught the eye of Scotland Yard and the FBI. Since they were suspected of shady dealings or were found to be conducting illegal businesses, many licenses were revoked, including Guardian. Because it was an offshore bank not backed by any governing body such as the FDIC, most of the original investors in Guardian National Bank were out of luck. The money was gone. And with it, all of the founders had just disappeared into thin air. Stanford was back at square one in so many ways, but this time he was a little more affluent and a little more steeped in what exactly he should tell clients to get them to take the bait. 
Montserrat no longer could offer any of the things Stanford desired. He had been discovered as a possible fraud. There was no money to be made there. It was time to move on before angry investors could follow. So what exactly was his plan? What was he going to do now? We'll find out right after the break. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Welcome back from the break. In 1991, John Stanford was picking up and moving to Antigua, taking with him one of his most valuable employees. In 1986, Stanford had called up an old classmate from Baylor, James Jim Davis, to help with day-to-day work. Davis had quickly rose in the ranks of his small financial institution in Montserrat and became a sort of right-hand man. In fact, he had been involved in every dirty deal and detail of Stanford's life. One of the biggest lessons Stanford had finally learned was how important it was to ingratiate yourself to everyone you possibly could, whether you were certain they could move you forward or you just weren't sure yet. Gone were the days of only affiliating with the rich and famous. As it turned out, it was a magical way to open doors and minds to your way of thinking. As soon as he landed in Antigua, he bought up most of the land around the airport and birthed Stanford Financial International, thus beginning the same exact type of advertising campaign he had used before. Meanwhile, in the new country, the unemployment rate dropped thanks to his company alone, which was one of the major employers now. The Antiguan government began to take notice of him and to consider him an asset to the country. At this point, Stanford was the proud citizen of both the United States and Antigua. Therefore, duplicity ran deep and was incredibly pervasive in the government and police force of Antigua. This played right into Stanford's wheelhouse, as he was a wheeler and dealer, and the dirtier the deals, blackmail, and backroom conspiracies were, the more they were aligned with his goals. The Antiguan benefactor had created his own fiefdom. It was simple. They wouldn't look too closely at what he was doing with his financial dealings, and as a thank you, Stanford International would loan the government $87 million, and they all went. The financier was above the law, in a place like this where money bought immunity from any criminal acts. The gambit that had begun in Montserrat had promise, and if the authorities had not interrupted, 
It could have lasted years. But the sophistication of what he set up in Antigua was even more successful. With the money rolling in, Stanford opened actual premises in Panama, Venezuela, and Peru. But with this new level of success came a sense of ease, a feeling of comfort. He had it made. What could go wrong? This was when Stanford made what would end up being his tactical error in focusing his sights on the United States. By 1995, Texas was, again, hosting Stanford. He rented buildings and headhunted financial advisors from all of the big-name companies. This was a purposeful move, knowing that, like mechanics or hairdressers, people are reluctant to try out anyone new. When it comes to something like money, you want a familiar face. The more knowledgeable and reputable staff he hired, his credibility and the seeming legitimacy of his operation were less likely to be questioned. With a suitable number of lackeys between himself and the public, Stanford began his American advertising campaign. The plan was to market the same strategy as a Certificate of Deposit, or CD, program. The easiest way to describe a Certificate of Deposit is to imagine a special account at your bank. When you open a CD, you put in the initial lump sum, also known as the principal, with the agreement that you will not make any withdrawals for a specified amount of time. If, in an emergency situation, you must remove some of the money, it's done so at a cost, a penalty. This motivates customers to leave the money untouched. During that time, your money collects interest, and after the designated length of time, you return your certificate with the details to the holder, and you claim your principal plus the interest. While the amount of interest accrued and paid out is typically a low percentage, it's a safe option for those whose money would be sitting and accruing less interest or no interest at all. The people who are more likely to invest in such a safe, low-yield prospect as a CD are typically people who have a large principal buildup and are not wanting or needing to make super big bucks overnight. CDs are the safe way to earn and protect your life savings as it's not affected by drops in stocks or other equally volatile market changes. It also just so happened to fall right into Stanford's wheelhouse for several reasons. Individuals with life savings were typically very familiar with their financial advisors, hiring away the advisor the customers come with. They were less likely to question somebody who had done right by them for all of those years. And CDs were so common and so safe, it was practically unsensible to not put your money in them. They were also very close to being or already were retirees. The more money they could put in, the more money Stanford could access. He wanted people who could put in such a big amount for such an extended period of time. This would give him years to play with and squander other people's money. And even though the internet was in its infancy compared to today, in 1995, it was much more difficult to do due diligence research. Your money man said it was okay. They've never been wrong before. And this CD had almost a full percent or more in returns when compared to the CDs of competitors. It was lunacy not to allow your nest egg of a million dollars or so not to accrue interest while parked in a CD. What was the harm? Before long, 
advertisements were played on television in the U.S. showing a bald eagle soaring over the beautiful plains of the United States of America. A voiceover explained CDs and spoke about the capabilities of Stanford International. From the right side of the screen, Stanford himself would enter into the picture. His conservatively gray suit and perfectly combed mustache lent him gravitas as he spoke about just how good they were. The message was loud and clear, in between every line of dialogue. If you were a common-sense individual with money, and you loved America, Stanford International was your best option. What's more, at this point, there are at least 30 locations spread across the U.S. with many seasoned financial advisors waiting, ready to help you. As business picked up in the U.S. and South America, so did Stanford's activities and interests. One of the first things he did was create slush funds using the money that had been poured into CDs from all over. Next, he took advantage of Switzerland tax havens and opened accounts to funnel money into. He began to lend money to himself from the slush funds and general funds that Stanford International had control over, as well as the government of Antigua, because, of course, bribes were still needed. And all of this money came from funds he was not even legally allowed to touch. Stanford's lifestyle was out of control and very expensive. Anything that caught Stanford's eye, whether it be property, women, or obscene modes of transportation, was his, regardless of what he already had. Soon he bought up boats, castles, mansions, even islands. Like a child, he would enjoy them for a small amount of time, and then it was on to the next thing. If he became attached to something in particular, he would try to alter it to increase his ever-expanding stolen wealth. Sometimes, this attitude backfired. For example, after pouring money into the remodel of one of his favorite boats, it was no longer considered valuable and was questionable as to its seaworthiness. And then there were the women. In addition to his wife, Susan, he also had extramarital relationships with at least four other women who bore him children. If Stanford spent time in an area, he was sure to have at least one woman on the side. It's possible that some of these women knew that they were mistresses, while others had no idea, believing they were his only family. In an effort to keep up appearances of generosity outside of Antigua, Stanford also would occasionally funnel some money into charitable works, as long as it was a very public affair with lots of press coverage. At one point, he donated a large amount of money to Stanford University to remodel a mansion on campus. After the donation was made, a thought struck Alan Stanford, who immediately hired genealogists who may or may not have been legitimate, with the end goal being that he wanted to be related to the founding father of Stanford University, Leland Stanford. When it turned out that the genealogists found no tie to Leland Stanford, Big Al Stanford just decided to lie about it and give himself the publicity anyway. This, as you might imagine, was not well received by the university, and a lawsuit was threatened for trademark infringement. To garner further publicity, 
Stanford also made sure that the press caught wind of the hospital he had helped open in Antigua, out of the goodness of his own heart. It was a double-sided favor to himself, making sure he had a workforce that was marginally fit for their duties, and the publicity which made him look like a man destined for sainthood. Long forgotten were the days of his health club when he ran over anyone who he considered to be no one. Now, he was a philanthropist of the highest esteem. And it worked well for him, as Forbes featured him in an issue depicting him to be the 605th richest man in the world. Then there were the cricket matches. It seemed that this was one hobby that actually kept Stanford's interest for quite some time. At one point, Stanford International sponsored a high-profile cricket game by contributing a large sum of money towards the purse for the winning team. In order to display the money and his generosity, he flew it in via helicopter, contained in a clear box for all the spectators to see. Stanford told everybody that within the box was $20 million, a statement that has long since been debated as to its veracity. Things continued to get better. As a show of gratitude, in 2006, Stanford was knighted by the Antiguan government. It's never been made clear if this was something Stanford demanded of the country so indebted to him, but the three letters in Sir that preceded his name provided more ego, more credibility, another perfect publicity moment, and sent the subliminal message to every possible client considering Stanford International. If you can't trust a knight, who can you trust? It worked so well that he later re-imaged to the uniform having been bestowed upon him not by the Antiguan government, but by Queen Elizabeth II of England. He was on top of the world. But how high can you go before people start to question things? Soon, whispers started going around the financial world. How exactly did a man like Stanford make so much money off of just CDs? Sure, they were safe and attracted people based on that alone. But that also meant they weren't raking in the big payouts of more risky investments. There were still plenty of people out in the world who wanted to diversify their funds, keeping some in more secure, lower-earning places, with another portion taking more risk. It's a very common strategy. In fact, so many of the other big advisors specialized in exactly this. But then there was Stanford with only his CDs. Then there was also his spending, his charity, his obvious obligations of child support to families he had scattered across the world. The SEC, or Securities and Exchange Commission, had also been on high alert after a recent discovery of a large Ponzi scheme masterminded by Bernie Madoff. Scrambling to uncover any other illegal stratagems, it seems that the SEC began to closely examine Stanford after determining that something just felt off. The founder of Stanford International Bank soon discovered that his clients were being asked questions by the SEC in the form of a survey. A scramble ensued to hide all of his wrongdoings. Stanford had, indeed, gotten sloppy as he enjoyed other people's hard-earned money. 
Quickly, memos were sent out to all of Stanford's 500 employees in the U.S., instructing them what kind of documents needed to be purged. As a matter of everyday business, of course. Anything that noted how the CDs were actually pitched and sold had to be removed and destroyed. The only thing that should remain in every single file was the contract of the CD. Two of the individuals that had been hired away by Stanford, Charles Rawl and Mark Tidwell, began to question to themselves why they were potentially breaking so many laws and destroying so many documents. Once they started pulling at that proverbial string, other questions arose in their minds, causing them to grow even more disenfranchised with Stanford. They smelled a rat and began secretly taking possession of incriminating documents with the plans to drive it to the SEC in Fort Worth as proof. They were afraid the entire time, but they knew that what they suspected Stanford was up to was so far beyond immoral, they had to do something. Concerned for their safety, both men decided to take the exact same copies with them on two different routes with the same destination, hoping that at least one of them would make it, if not both. The SEC was surprised to find that the documents that had been delivered to them via Stanford International, versus what Charles Rawl and Mark Tidwell had submitted, were unrecognizable in comparison. For one, the certificates had been put together using simulated hypothetical data on what returns on principle the investors could expect. Then, after a quick check, the SEC had also discovered that absolutely none of the CDs were insured by Lloyds of London as advertised. In short, the certificates that SIB had issued weren't worth the paper they had been printed on. The nearly 30,000 clients of Stanford International went to bed February 16th of 2009 believing that all was right with the world. Their money was safe and sound. However, overnight, all of the lies employees that Stanford had created began to implode. The SEC had been putting pressure on James Davis to tell all, and they were willing to make a deal. Obviously, Stanford knew something was up. Otherwise, he wouldn't have had people destroy documents. The writing was on the wall, and he knew that he was going to be arrested sooner than later. It was time to make his escape. Luckily for him, he knew exactly where to go. The beloved Antigua. He could do it. He could travel light. His children were with Susan, who was still fighting for a divorce that she filed for in 2007. They had been getting along without him for years, even before she filed. But at the same time, as the SEC compiled evidence against him, it became clear that they needed to stop Stanford from leaving the U.S. They saw his dealings across the world and knew he had the means to get away. They collected his passport and froze his accounts, reminding him that he was to stay put in the U.S. Authorities were actually a little bit late to the table as far as this went because Stanford had already tried to hire a helicopter to transport him. He wanted to pay with a check, but his helicopter pilot was a little too worldly wise and maybe knew who Stanford was. If he wanted a ride out of the country, he'd have to pay cash or do a wire transfer. 
As the pilot had suspected, Stanford's checks were no good, and the SEC had already seized all assets. Alan Stanford was stuck. The SEC and their investigation became very public very quickly, as the offices of Stanford International were searched for evidence. All of Stanford's clients woke up to see the news. The office that they had trusted was now a crime scene, and the man that they thought would help them through their golden years was a fraud. Crestfallen, people began to realize they were robbed blind. It was a Ponzi scheme of massive proportions. As victims crawled out of the woodworks telling stories of how they had been conned and the SEC poured over seized evidence, one question loomed. Where was all the money? Forensic accountants and federal investigators continued to dig and dig and take as many statements from the conned investors, but nothing was turning up. The fact that the money just couldn't be found wasn't helping Stanford, as he claimed that his company was in fact legitimate and that they were on a witch hunt looking for any type of Ponzi scheme, even when there wasn't one. He told everybody who would listen, including his lawyers, that his company was a legitimate, well-run operation. But the more Stanford cried foul, the more people came forward with disconcerting stories that further proved that the man was simply lying out of his teeth. Several investors had been spooked by the fact that the SEC was sending questionnaires and asking investors about their dealings with Stanford International Bank. More than one customer had asked for his principal to be returned, as something just didn't feel right, only to be told by Stanford the same smoke-and-mirror type of lies that got them into this scheme. We can't give you your money back right now. There's a moratorium company-wide on payouts on immature CDs. Or, they were told the SEC had frozen their account in particular, for some reason unknown to Stanford International at this time. Both of these were outright falsehoods that did little to comfort the panicky investors. They knew before the other shoe fell that something just wasn't right. After only 48 hours of digging, authorities agreed that they had enough to build a civil case against Alan Stanford on February 19, 2009. When the FBI began to cast around wanting to present the civil charges from the SEC to Stanford, They didn't find him near his children or his estranged wife Susan from the old health club days. Stanford was holed up in Virginia with his girlfriend. It wouldn't be until June 18th of 2009 that the FBI arrested Stanford on actual charges of fraud, including wire, mail, and conspiracy, money laundering, and obstruction of justice. And in the true fashion of initial arraignments, Stanford pleaded not guilty to all charges against him, 14 in all. Stanford had hired a team of lawyers to handle both civil and criminal cases against him, and it became clear that he needed to combine forces despite the fact that they were two separate trials. On his team of lawyers was a fellow Texan, Dick DeGarren, who was famous for representing Robert Allen Durst and David Koresh, leader of the Branch Davidians, after the deadly impasse in Waco. Despite his heavy-hitter record, 
DeGaron passed his lead role in the defense to Robert Luskin of Patton Boggs, who had been representing Stanford on the civil case charges. It was never stated why, but it's fair to suspect that because Stanford couldn't pay the high rates charged by such a lawyer, DeGaron passed. He was, after all, penniless until the SEC relented. What came next was a dramatic spectacle befitting a daytime soap opera. In a bid that must have been crafted to delay the inevitable trial, a series of unexpected occurrences were continually presented to the courts via attorney. They were going to need time to build a solid defense. Soon, the judge began to hear things like, Mr. Stanford had heart problems. We have to check that out before trial, don't we? Or, it appears that Big Al's addicted to benzodiazepines. That's something we're going to need to take care of before trial too, right? And finally, while being held in a men's facility in Conroe, Texas, Stanford was involved in a beatdown in the prison. His defense team claimed that the severe bodily harm that the inmates did caused irreversible amnesia, and his competency to stand trial would need to be tested. This last stunt was clearly at least in part manufactured by Stanford. Whether or not he instigated a fight in order to sustain such damage to his body will probably never be known. But during his trial, witnesses would later recall seeing him literally chewing on his tongue in order to spit into a cup in the courtroom, hoping to convey the fact that he was bleeding internally. The physical pain that Stanford welcomed in order to feign amnesia backfired. The court system had enough, and he would stand trial. He was fit. All of this dramatic smoke and mirrors by his legal team did buy him some time, and his criminal trial began on January 24th of 2012. Stanford was going to answer for the $8 billion fraud that he had committed against over 30,000 investors. As the trial went on, prosecution continued to point out that 98% of that money was still missing and would likely continue to go undiscovered, as Stanford had long since squandered it on lavish living and women and the child support that followed those relationships. Character witnesses were called, and stories were told of Stanford and his impetuous and quick-to-anger personality. Victims testified to the millions that they themselves had lost trusting Stanford International. There was also the ruthless, continual pressure on reps to find new investors to defraud. It took seven weeks, but on March 6th of 2012, the criminal case on Stanford came back with a guilty verdict on 13 out of 14 counts. Unwilling to go out quietly, Stanford gave a long speech addressing the courtroom before his sentencing that was simply a power move. There was no hint of remorse or apology to be found in his blather. His sentencing would turn out to be 110 years in prison total. While the maximum sentence for his crime could have been up to 230 years in prison, 110 would keep the 62-year-old con man in jail for life. The resolution of the civil case came on April 26th of the same year. He had been ordered to disgorge, or pay back, $6.7 billion, as well as pay a $5.9 billion fine. 
Alan Stanford will sit and rot in prison for the theft of not only money, but the hopes and dreams of 30,000 people who placed their trust in him. He took money that had been set aside for retirement, extreme health emergencies, children, grandchildren, and the unforeseen to live a life that exuded opulence and self-indulgence simply because he could. That concludes this episode of Mugshot. As a reminder, Mugshot is back on a bi-weekly release schedule, so we'll be back with you in two weeks. Although we are trying to release episodes early when possible due to time off in 2020. In the meantime, follow us on all social media outlets at the handle at MugshotPod or email us at MugshotPod at Yahoo.com. Until next time, stay out of trouble or you may end up pictured in your very own mugshot.